It's the first day of class, and there are two photos projected on the screen. One photo, the professor tells us, is from April 29, 1975. There's a helicopter on top of the roof of a building, and the staircase leading up to it is packed with people. This is the image that has come to symbolize the fall of Saigon. And then there's another image. Two toddlers, their mother, and a birthday cake. And then she tells us the story behind this photo. So I was born September 2nd, 1974. And I was actually born in Thailand, outside of Royal Thai Udorn Air Force Base, which is in the northern part of the country, um, very close to the Laotian border. And it just so happened that that Air Force Base uh, was the headquarters for the Air America fleet, was this, and that was the CIA-owned fleet. The images of helicopters that are rescuing uh, Vietnamese refugees and people trying to get out of uh, the fallen city of Saigon, those were helicopters that were CIA-owned helicopters and they flew out of this Air Force Base. So I, I mention all this because my biological mother was a Cambodian woman who married a Thai pilot who was being trained by the CIA and by the Air Force to fly missions. She had an affair with an American GI who was stationed there uh, she had two children, two mixed-race children, me and my twin brother. And my biological father was actually married. He had four kids in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and he left. And um, here's my biological mother, and she's married, has had an affair, and she's looking to give up two children. Um, and it just so happened that my adoptive parents, so my mother's Japanese, my father's an American, they were stationed at that Air Force Base. And for the first 13 years of my parents' marriage, they had been looking for children. And part of the reason they were looking for children is my mother was 11 years old when the bomb at Nagasaki was dropped, and she lived roughly 20 miles outside of Nagasaki. And she would never talk about this. I've mentioned this. She'll never talk about radiation or things like that, but none of the women in her family have had children. So she had spent all this time with my father looking for children, and they find two mixed-race children, and they adopt us for $25. You know, it's a war. Um, and then we eventually leave. And that's the photo. Like, the photo that I showed was the first family photo. That's my first adoption photo. So that's actually, the, that's the story. That's the story. And this is Professor Kathy Schlund Files. Do you have, like, a good joke? Not one that's appropriate. <laughs> I want to like. I want people to know um, you're funny in this podcast. We talk a lot about like serious stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're funny. I know, but I'm awful at telling jokes. <laughs> I'm Ali Oshinsky, and this is Professors Are People Too, a show about the friends you didn't know you could have, the advice you didn't know you could ask for and the professors you didn't know were, like, people. After hearing that story, I realized I didn't know anything nearly that personal about my other professors. This is a space that students and professors just don't go to. But for Professor Schlund-Viles, this space is an inroad to teaching. It's how she contextualizes it. It's a personal history, but it's also an academic history. On the first day, she showed us two images related to the fall of Saigon. She found one of them on the internet, 
and the other in a family album. I knew that I was part of the Vietnam War, but I didn't understand the specificity of it. I, I mean, I think history matters considerably, especially when you don't know that history that brought you into being. So, you know, for example, I thought for the longest time I was Thai American because I was born in Thailand. And I remember tw being 23, about to go to graduate school, and I made a joke with my dad that the only film for Thai people was The King and I, like just this musical. And he said, no, your, your film's The Killing Fields. You're actually Cambodian. And I never really thought about that because it had never been expressed. And it just really threw me for a loop because I had no idea about Cambodian American experiences outside of a very limited knowledge of The Killing Fields. Um, era, which was the period where uh, 1.7 million Cambodians perished, right? In a three-year, eight-month, 20-day period under an authoritarian regime. But I didn't really know the specificity of that, and I felt completely displaced because I had predicated my entire life up to that point being a different type of Southeast Asian American. And for me, that's like all the work that I do is personally driven. It's historically based, um, and it usually focuses on race, but it does come out of that not knowing, you know, and, and so I, I, I share that with students, but I think that like we all have that, like, you know, there are certain family histories that don't make sense unless you apply like kind of other historical frames to that. So I'm not exceptional. I think it's pretty like kind of normal. I found this funny. If this wasn't exceptional, then clearly I'd been asleep when other professors personally contextualized the entire course on the first day of classes. But she's right. It's not exceptional to have family stories woven into significant historical events. But for Professor Schlundweils, her family album didn't come with a comprehensive history. So she had to uncover it herself. So I use that experience because I think that it individualizes it. Um, and it's about like what's forgotten because like what I've just told you, which, you know, took a very chronological format. She means the story of her birth and adoption. That took me years to put together, you know, because my parents never talked about it. I would have to ask questions and then do a little more research and then ask a different question or like learn to listen to silences that my parents weren't talking about. And so listening to silences are just like, you know, well, what is not said or what's said differently? Listening into those silences, Professor Schlund Viles found maybe the coolest war story I've ever heard. My father doesn't really talk about the Vietnam War in the way that, you know, I would expect a veteran to talk about the war. But what he talks about are the things that impacted him. For example, um, the fact that his job was to load munitions onto aircraft. And he just mentions, oh, well, sometimes if you just put a piece of paper into the lock mechanism and the pilot would go off, that would actually prevent a bombing. And it wouldn't kill anybody, but it was just a little piece of paper. And it was just like, he wouldn't say that he did that because that would be like, kind of something that's illegal and you know but it's it's kind of a profound piece of knowledge that would only be known to somebody who had experience with that or knew of that practice right what an amazing story at this point i had what i'm gonna call an office hours crush professor schlund Viles clearly has really cool stories and i wanted to hear them all 
So I know I'm making this podcast about professors and going to their office hours, but normally I get kind of nervous. It's not that I think a professor's going to bite off my head. I just don't know if we'll have anything to talk about. I get mixed messages from professors and how they present their office hours. Our office hours for MLA formatting questions and begging for an extension on a paper? Or can I come in and we can just chat? One day, I happened to be walking past Professor Schlenweil's office, and her door was open. All the way. It was welcoming. And she'd taped a picture of two corgi puppies spooning on it. So I considered that my invitation. And I just walked in. When we got to talking, basically all my office hour fears went away. First, we talked about dogs. We have two dogs, and so... Corgis? Uh, just one corgi and an elk hound. What? A Norwegian elk hound. Is that like a hound kind of dog? It looks like a German shepherd that was put in a dryer, and then it was <laughs> made into a medium-sized dog. And then we talked about Mexican food. There's know. like Bueno Isano, there's... Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Bueno Isano, yes. I went there. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Our respective experiences in bartending. How was it working in the one close to campus? Um, it was fine. Lots of frappuccinos. I wasn't a flair bartender or anything like that. And if somebody, you know, came to me and they had a drink I didn't know, I'd just tell them what's in it. <laughs> and if you couldn't tell me what's in it, you couldn't handle the responsibility of the drink, so I wouldn't make it for you. Wow. Yeah. And the coolest part was Kathy as she told me to call her, didn't just stare at me and wait for me to make conversation. Well, how's yeah. the class going for you? Like, what in particular? I'm just curious. Well, how do you feel? I mean, what's your, what's your family history? I'm just curious from your perspective. I didn't have to try to sound smart or come up with thoughtful and provoking questions. We just talked. And it turns out Kathy had some of the same anxieties I did when she was an undergrad. When I was a student, I never went to office hours because I was nervous. I wanted to seem smart. Yeah. I didn't want someone to think I was like a dumbass. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so what I would do is just avoid professors. Like, and, and to the point where I would see them on campus and then I would hide from them because I didn't want them to see me. Right. You know, um, so I completely understand. So that, you know. Kathy is so funny. But when I asked her about it, she, like, totally denied it. I don't think I'm funny, though. My brother's so funny. Like, I think that, like, Chris is funny. You know, I think that there are certain things that make me laugh, like my hatred of Arby's. Like, you know. <laughs> the joke is that she hates Arby's. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I was a funny person. Okay, so maybe Kathy's not doing stand-up or anything. But it's not really what she says, but how she says it that's funny. She uses this casual tone that can be self-deprecating. It was the 90s, and I was wearing Daisy Dukes, and I thought that that was a good thing with a long shirt. Like, you know, it was not a good look. She also uses this tone in classroom conversations. Well, she's not self-deprecating per se, but she doesn't approach class with an authoritative I-know-and-you-don't attitude. And that's what's amazing about this incredibly intelligent professor who studies racial politics. 
she can make the anxiety-ridden and heated topic of race feel like a conversation and not a lecture. I don't think I've ever had a professor who could do that. But before I head into that, I should tell you a little bit more about me. I used to be a women's gender and sexuality studies major. I took classes about transnational feminism, intersectionality, types of masculinity, decolonization practices, types of feminism, ending the rape culture, intersectionality in race, sexuality, class, gender, perceived gender, nation of origin, disability, and the list goes on. I took classes on those subjects, but I didn't learn about those subjects. What I learned was how to stop asking questions. Because if I said something that wasn't squeaky clean and totally feminist and anti-racist, my classmates' hands would shoot into the air with seven different ways that I was wrong. I didn't just risk looking stupid when I asked a question. I risked looking like a bigot. Until Kathy's class, I don't think I learned about race in an environment where I wasn't scared to ask an honest question. I wanted to know how she did this. So with the memory of all the questions I wished I didn't ask. Hi, Professor. Can I come in? Yeah. I went to Kathy's office hours to talk about race. It's not so much educating someone to a position because I think that's hierarchical and a bit paternalistic. But you kind of assume that not everybody is going to have the same vocabulary. They're going to struggle, for example, with discussions of race, which is what I tend to teach. So I never expect students or my colleagues to have this elevated vocabulary if they've never been exposed to it, right? And I, I was actually asked on a, on a film that I was part of through a high school, like, well, do you think, like, a goal should be to end racism? And I said, no, that's an absurd goal, right? Like, that kind of takes away from the dialogic ability to talk about difference. I mean, nobody can actually say... I'm not racist, I can't even say that, right? So if I'm honest with my students as a person of color and, you know, talk about, well, there are struggles that I have on this conversation, I'm not the authority, I'm not always on the right side of history, that actually is more meaningful, I think, than just saying, oh, well, we shouldn't be racist. I kept trying to pull the conversation back to current debates, hoping that Kathy, wise and politically knowledgeable as she is, would have some perspective that I could model. And then she said this. To, um, you know, put forward a position without seeming open is never going to convince anybody, right? So, like, I, you know, I, I never, and this is something that I'm very careful about, I don't like to bring politics, overt politics, into a classroom space. I should mention that we were talking before November 8th. Right. So and I was talking to a student about this in terms of Trump. Right. So obviously, well, maybe it's I think it's pretty obvious to students, but like I'm like so far left. I'm like a Marxist. You know, <laughs> I am a like I, I believe in the dissolution of the nation state. Like I, I believe in all these things. But um, I also don't want somebody to feel that the conversation is shut down because I'm putting forward my political views because there's a hierarchy that I, you know, have to, that is maintained in the classroom. So I actually have the ultimate authority, regardless of what I may say in terms of I want a student-centered classroom, I learn from students, these are all true, but at the end of the day, I'm the one assessing grading and I have power in that situation. So if I actually invoke Trump, that's going to shut down conversation because somebody in my classroom may actually be a Republican. 
So what's more advantageous to alienate that person and to fulfill every expectation of what it means to be a politically correct subject or to actually just let that person come to a conclusion based on the material I present, which is largely historical. I mean, like, so so you'll notice even in the class we're taking, like, I'm much more of a historically driven person because I think that history can be a guide. You know, if, if students feel that they can talk about the history with some degree of familiarity, then they're probably going to have a better informed sense of how to talk about race. Right. You know, um, but I think that the problem oftentimes in certain classes, particularly those that are have the diversity gen ed designation, is that the assumption is that you have to fix people when they come into your class, that somehow they're racist, they're like pathologized in that way. So it is your job to kind of shout them down. And I think that that is really not I, I mean, you're going to alienate and you're actually going to confirm various positions that everybody puts on you. Is like, you know, narrow-minded, uh, bleeding-heart liberal, all that other stuff. What Kathy said was something I needed to hear. I left her office empowered. And then the thing happened that no one expected. Trump won. I was sitting in the studio putting together this podcast as the votes came in. And I knew that I had to go back to Kathy's office. I'm still thinking through this because the day after the election, I had a number of students come into my office and they were very upset. And I think that, you know, the tendency for people, and you had mentioned the generational gap, is to just kind of tell people how they should be feeling or how they should be thinking or trying to put it in a you know, just a very theoretical framework. And that's not the way people are experiencing this election, right? Mm. Or, or that's not the way they experience the, the election. The whirlwind of opinions, articles, and protests are telling me how to feel right now. And to be honest, I'm doing the same to others. I'm feeling history close in on me. I imagine my someday grandkids or kids asking, what did you do then? That anxiety narrows my mind in this moment. I want to accuse and assume and yell because it feels like the right kind of radical action. Talking with Kathy, I saw her calm words and patient listening as radical too. A really necessary type of radical. I think that it's a mistake to make the assumption that everybody who voted for a certain candidate was a racist. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to make that claim rather than talking to people. But, you know, what What really upsets me is just the, you know, kind of the shutting down of a conversation and not understanding that, you know, questions actually lead to, like, more curiosity. And I mean, I, I never get upset when somebody asks me where I'm from. Um, you know, that, that to me is a question that comes out of a true curiosity, um, treating me like a human being, not relegating me to the sidelines. But it's not the best question to ask somebody who's Asian American, right? Because there's this long history of racialization, what have you. But that's not the time to, like, drop some science or, like, you know, spin knowledge on somebody. Because, you know, if I do that, then I become, you know, for better or worse, representative of a group of people. So I think that when you accuse other people of being bigoted or you 
you know, accuse them of somehow being on the wrong side of history, you know, that's not a very self-aware position because I don't think any of us are 100% like perfect people in that regard. I mean, I, you can't. I wish I could have a moment at the end of this podcast that could make it all better. I wish I could know how to be on the right side of history, but I can't because there are more than two sides to history and there are more than two sides to an education. When I went to Kathy, I might have hoped for it, but I knew she wasn't going to give me the right answer. Professors aren't the keepers of truth who hand down some golden key on graduation day. Because truth can't be kept, and it's definitely not locked up. We're not in college to find the ultimate truth. We're here to learn curiosity, the skill of curiosity, to pose questions and inquire both in class and office hours. So don't be afraid of your questions, even the ones that have been shut down. In fact, pull them out, dust them off, and find a professor to open them up with. Thank you to Sean Forbes, Ruth Fairbanks, Jason McMullen, and Danielle Shalou for their help and support with this podcast. A huge special extra thanks to Kathy Schlendviles. I couldn't have asked for a more graceful and necessary guiding light in these past few weeks. And thanks to you, listener. I am still so flattered by all the kind words and enthusiasm for the first episode. You are making all my little podcasting dreams come true. So please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And keep your eyes peeled for the next episode of... Professor. 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 Professors are people too. Professor.